Montana has become known for fabulous writers and books that have helped define the American West. One of the interesting aspects of Montana literary history is a mix of writers who grew up in Montana and then left and continued to write about it, such as Ivan Doig, Norman McLean, and people who moved to Montana and developed their writing style living in this wonderful place, like Tom McGuane or Deborah Magpie Erling. And then there are those who never left, such as Dorothy Johnson and James Welch. No matter how these various writers managed to become enamored with Montana, many of the books that have come out of this state have become classics. And many have led to classic films as well, such as Shane, A River Runs Through It, and more recently, The Power of the Dog. I'm Charles Finn, author of Wild Delicate Seconds and On a Benediction of Wind. And we at Breakfast in Montana are here to explore what it is about Montana that inspires so many great books and so many wonderful writers. For the next hour or so, we're going to talk to a Montana writer about one of their books. And I'm Russell Rowland, author of 56 Counties, Cold Country, and a few other books. We're also going to talk to these authors about a writer that has influenced their work. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Before we start talking about the books we're going to discuss this episode, I want to introduce everyone to my new co-host, Charles Finn, who just uh, won the Montana Book Award for On a Benediction of Wind. And uh, he and I have known each other for quite a few years now. Welcome, Charles. It's great to be working with you. Well, thanks so much, Russell, and thanks for inviting me to join join you. Yeah. Um, I, I have some big shoes to fill. I know Aaron did a great job. So, yes, he uh, did. You know, fingers crossed that I can uh, keep up the quality. Right. And I'm not worried about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I also want to thank we have a couple of sponsors the the bookstore in dillon uh deborah sporich is one of our sponsors and the isle of books in bozeman medley antonioli uh and she also owns the isle of books and books in butte so thanks to them for sponsoring our show this episode, we are going to interview an old friend of ours, Shan Ray. And I'm I'm curious to know, how did you meet Shan? Oh, it was probably through High Desert Journal. Mm, uh, right. I mean, it, it must have been. Uh, so he either submitted or somebody asked us to maybe solicit something from him. But yeah, it was, it was through the journal that he first sent us something. And, um, and of course, there was really strong and we, we printed yeah. it immediately. Yeah. yeah. So we should mention here that Charles used to be the editor of the High Desert Journal mm -hmm. for how long? Quite a few years. Yeah, about 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, I came on just as the editor. Elizabeth Quinn was running the whole show uh -huh. herself and um, and eventually she stepped away and I, I took over the, right. the management of it also. So Right. So I met Shan it's kind of a cool story. When his first book came out, American Masculine, which was just an amazing collection of stories, he was doing a little tour of Montana, and I got an email from 
this guy Shan Ray saying he was doing a tour and he wanted to meet. He was just reaching out to various writers around the state and asking them to meet for coffee. So we met for coffee and somewhere along the line, I realized who he was. I mean, anybody who's a fan of basketball knows who mm -hmm. Shan Furch is <laughs> yeah. and he's a legend in Montana basketball history. He and his brother won two state championships with the Livingston high school team. Yeah, I'm sure and, you've seen some of the, the videos. Yeah, oh that, my God. That, yeah. that double overtime game. Yeah. The championship. Just... I watched the, I watched when they played St. John's in the NCAA tournament. And, mm -hmm. you know, they actually gave them a pretty good run for their money for a 16 versus one. <laughs> anyway, um, I was just completely enthralled with the fact that this guy who was such a, stud in basketball ended up becoming this incredible poet and like a guy who's focused on forgiveness i mean that's his big field of study and he teaches at gonzaga now and he's just an, he's such an interesting guy right oh yeah and he's such a he's a big guy too but he's a, a you know gentle soul very soft-spoken yeah. Right. Yep. And uh, really easy to, to get along with and, and humble as, as they come too. Right. He's a sweetheart. Yeah. He's a sweet guy. And yeah, well, it, it really comes through. And I, I like the fact that your last story sort of um, is a, a summation of all this conflict i mean mm -hmm. and and to me this this story and i love i love your use of triptychs too there's so many in this book i enjoy that but yeah. this last yeah. one um yeah. it really conveys your fascination with the whole forgiveness thing yes this yes. whole section with jane and her dad or yeah. not jane but um the other Nat natasha, natasha yeah. mm -hmm. um uh, so this when i was 12 my mother died of lung cancer and i was scared my father would come back but i waited and he never came and that was even worse <laughs> it's like yeah. oh my god so then when they when they meet and yeah. you have this incredible scene between them it feels like it's come full circle and i'm so i i would like like mm. love to hear you talk about yeah how your study of forgiveness and yeah i think you know forgiveness pretty yeah it's it's so crucial i think i see it and now now the research confirms it but you know just to throw that out there people with higher forgiveness capacity uh tend to have significantly less anxiety significantly less anger mm. less significantly less heart disease as far as looking at groups of people right that's how research works you look at large groups of people but but that becomes very effective at gen what we call generalizability that, okay, in general, we know that people with higher forgiveness capacity can have, not, not every single person, but overall, you know, significantly less anxiety, anger, mm. less heart disease, uh, stronger well, sense of well-being, um, significantly stronger. And then there's bridges to uh, stronger immune systems, you know. So, cool. so then now because of that kind of research you have, the Mayo Clinic using forgiveness interventions with all of their patients because they're hoping in the, the larger, you know, uh, help 
healing whatever cancer somebody has. You know? And so I think intuitively a person might know that from the beginning that that forgiveness is probably something that will be good for our lives. It will probably release something that needs to be released. You know? And yeah. so there's sort of that intuitiveness. And then then there's things that are not intuitive. Like it might be more important to be a person that's a forgiveness asker who is capable of changing even than someone that's a forgiver, you know, because it's so much harder to ask forgiveness, mm. even than it even than it is to forgive, you know. <laughs> and then we talk about well, what about forgiving the self, and what about you know, there's all these these nuances to it. So, so I do see it see it as some type of uh, mystery uh, bridging, you know, like like when you apex the uh, the crown of Sylvan Lake down near where you know Russell is in the Beartooth Mountains, you know. But there's nothing like that after that incredibly horrible switchback straight up hike for you know oh, six miles or whatever it is. Then you crest, and you're like, oh my gosh, there it is. So, <laughs> and somehow the fishing game planted golden trout in here in 1938. My life is fulfilled. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah. you know, but I think life has a lot of that too. Like the the grind. There's a lot of things that are not capable of us to achieve. It's not like an achievement, it's like more like mystery, but but I think it is something like attunement to to yeah. mystery, you know, like, you know, okay, kind of like attunement to rivers or attunement to mountains or wildflowers or anything else. But so, so this story, this I'm glad you brought this one up because this one also is it creatively shaped, you know, as a as a great writer. But it came from my dissertation, and it was a male. It was a Cree oh. Indi- Cree Indian male that that built that whole forgiveness process with his mother. You know? Wow. And so that appears in my my book, Forgiveness and Power in the Age of Trusty, as his own story. Oh. You know, and and then this is a creative rendering of it. You know, right. to to frame it as a short story, and it, it certainly has you know lots of different things. I mean, history was his story. You kind of the main story of what you read came that that's his words, like what you read. You know, mm. directly directly from the you know. In, in that original research on the forgiving touch, it's called hermeneutic phenomenology, was this uh, style of research that I did, which is sort of a European uh, response to the the high positivism or high quantitative research that was taking over. You know? So hermeneutics is the interpretation of things, like you're you're the vessel of interpretation. So the level of your depth or acuity, you know, towards whatever you're studying or towards life itself is going to be the level of your interpretation. So it's you know, sort of like if Martin Buber writes about I am now, that's different than Jerry Falwell writing about I am now. You know? mm-hmm. So that, that thing of like the researcher is the vessel uh, is, it was a very artistic form of research. That's so interpretation of hermeneutics of phenomenology of a phenomenon or a thing that happens in the lived world. And I chose to research the forgiving touch, a time when you either touched someone hoping to convey forgiveness or you were touched and you felt forgiven. And for me at that time, I was like, well, I'm going to be working in forgiveness a lot as a psychologist. You know, so this would be a beautiful way to do research. And it turned out being a beautiful way to do research. But then, of course, like as you go on through life, you're like, man, those stories were so incredible. Like, I think that would work well in a short story, too. Let me figure yeah. out what you can, how you can play with it. So that, that's how that story came about. And then well, framing it in the feminine I thought was sort of like a nod to, you know, the feminine essence of God, you know. Well, the the thing I loved about it too was that um, it's really more about her fighting her way to finding the, the ability to tell him 
that she loved yeah. him and it yeah. and he doesn't even say it back so no it really is mm-hmm. about her finding yeah the, the, the ability to forgive without Powerful. any kind of expectation of Powerful. getting anything back from him that's yeah, and 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 interestingly enough like so if we flip if we go to the original right it was a it was a male then forgiving mm-hmm. his mother the female and that guy had incredible talent you know uh this cree man very close friend of mine then his life could not have gone up more in flames knows that right yeah so it's also back to like man we can't control anything really you know? approaches the whole issue of men in the West in a way that's just really powerful. Yeah, that, that's one of the very interesting things about his his work is that it focuses a lot on men and the violence they perpetrate against themselves and often against women. We're mm-hmm. going to talk to him and ask him about that. Yeah. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times um, violence, which is, is yeah. a, a theme that is you write about often yeah. in, in nearly most of your work. Yeah. And so I want you to talk a little bit about that, because it's often I was telling Russell earlier, you set it off with quite an amount of compassion and, and even beauty. But mm. there's so much violence, that, especially men, male mm-hmm. violence, which they perpetrated on themselves or quite often on, on women. Uh, yeah. So what's the. What's, I don't want to call it a fascination or just why is that yeah. topic you write about so often? Yeah, I do. I, I do see it as kind of central to the world, you know, like how violent is it to give birth, for example, you know, or how violent is it to grow up in a violent family or how violent is it to notice that the nation is mm. maybe bent towards fascism, you know, mm. or how, how violent is it to notice that the largest percentage, you know, being a psychologist and a researcher, you're, you're always associated with the research and, and various percentages that come out of the research, but the largest, largest percentage of people are fractured in their intimate core and can't sustain a loving, enduring uh, relationship with someone for, for their lifetime. You know, like, well, we could say that they're not meant to, they're meant to have kind of in and out of relationships throughout their life, you know? Well, I don't personally ascribe to that. I don't, I don't, you know, blame people for having multiple relationships, but I think the family was meant not for fracture or violence, but for intimacy and compassion and grace and love and patience, and peace and kindness. You know? And it doesn't mean everybody can realize that or any of us can totally realize that, but there are certainly much better families than other families. And sometimes we're afraid of that statement. You know what I mean? Like mm. Once, once my dad changed from more violent to less violent, it was way better. Mm. <laughs> you know, what I mean? once I changed from uh, super defensiveness around my flaws to open handed, yes, please tell me my flaws. It's way better for my life and my daughters. It's clear that a big part of the big reason for that is because he's lived through some tough stuff of of his own. You know, he's I've talked to him a lot about his upbringing and, you know, his dad was was a basketball coach and wasn't always the nicest guy. So, you know, Mm -hmm. he learned from experience. So, yeah, the book that we're going to talk about is Blood, Fire, Vapor, Smoke. And it's one of. 
I don't know. He's probably published close to 10 books now, hasn't he? I, Including I think the so. poetry collections. Yeah, I think so. It's getting up there. Yeah. So this is short stories, but because of his style, it's almost like a combination of stories and poems. <laughs> I mean, and, and and what's I think we mentioned this a little while ago. We were talking. And it's so eclectic. It's, yeah. it's not a not a collection of short stories these days where they all need to be focused more or less on one thing, and there needs to be a thread that runs through them. This is it's jumps around um, a whole bunch of different you know, continents and uh, from basketball to, uh, you know, Native American stories to all sorts of things. And contemporary, going back in the past, it's, it's quite an interesting mix. Just spending lots of time in the Beartooths and in the Crazies mm. and along the Yellowstone and the Gallatin and Madison. And so I think that background, you know, somewhat in Glacier, and, you know, that that background then pairs up with people like Annie Pruse. Uh, you know, her her writing is so shocking. Her verb use is so shockingly powerful and how it creates her lyricism, I think, you know. Um, and then other people that I've, you know, really identified with, Shisako Endo, the writer of Silence, um, you know, Graham Greene, The Power and the Glory, and tons of others. Uh, Edna O'Brien, the amazing Irish novelist and short story writer, you know. And then that pairs out with Chris Howell saying things like entire sections of, he's a poet, right? And he's teaching me and, and the group at that time. But um, And he's saying entire sections of, Mar of Marilyn Robinson's um, housekeeping and Cormac McCarthy's, um, I think he was mentioning uh, Blood Meridian. Mm -hmm can stand alone as poems. Entire chapters, he said, can stand alone as poems. And I thought, wow, I really like that. So that all of that started to, you know, inspire me as a person and an artist. And then I just started playing with all that kind of secretly. Like I, I would collapse poetry that I wrote and just place it in novels. You know? mm. And I would take fiction that I wrote and lineate it and try to get that, you know, published as a poem somewhere. So I've always, I've been doing that for about, you know, kind of maybe right at, right after the MFA. Program, you know? Just kind of messing with the rules a little bit. You're, you're so good at conveying um, the struggle to make connection between people and yeah. how even if people are so committed to it and trying so hard, there's so many instances where they they just can't make it happen that's right <laughs> and i think that's you right. explore that so well mm. and you always have but this this book it was really striking to me that that aspect of your stories i appreciate it i think that's probably too kind of what starkness does too is it kind of like you said it gives a certain strike pattern you know like it creates the fires or something you know, but, mm -hmm. but um but I've, I've always loved that about people too you know that this or that cousin or me or this or that, you know, person in my life or, you know, why does, why does one brother see the world this way and another brother see the world that way? All of that, I think is so beautiful. You know? Yeah. And, I've... and again, it's not, there's nothing binary about it or black and white about it. It's like somebody might have a flaw, flaw pattern that's just killing them and destroying all the relationships. 
and they, and they can be just way more sacrificial than anybody else I know, you know, like, oh. I, I always think that's so interesting, you know? Yeah. You know, wow. Yeah. Hey, can I ask you to read a sentence from it? And mm. I got a couple of questions that, that go with it. Um, yeah. So if you can, first man, the very first yes. story in the book, yeah. uh, the very first sentence. Yeah. And if you can, can you, um, cause it's a long, it's a long one. Can you tell us about writing that? If you can remember writing it or yeah, how you totally, write that, yeah. that sentence. And I have, yeah. and when you're done, there's a couple specific word choices. I want to, um, you bet. ask you about, but read that first little bit there. If you can, the first man ran North hard under cover of the night fast along riverbed and up climbing the forested bulk of land over land up rock faces and out upon the serrated edge of snow laden cirques and down again descending into valleys and further down low upon the valley floor into a daylight that pierced all as he ran through pinch of canyon walls and out again over open plains crumbled at the far edge by timber and stone down in the night to the heart of the great forest and out finally over a wide expanse of gray rock bold line of trees along the big river below the man who ran more animal or wind than man, bent to the far place of snow and skyborn earth, bent with abandon to Tin Mountain House. That's just a, a beautifully braided, wonderfully poetic sentence. And I, I really enjoyed the, the wording, up climbing the forested bulk of land over rock. Like the up climbing and land over are, are curious Construction is yeah. a way to, way to say that. Can you just talk about your writing process and especially these these beautiful long sentences that you you create? I mean, I just I think I would just give so much gratitude to Chris Howell, the poet who was my major mentor mm. at East at Eastern, and then Jonathan Johnson, the poet who was my major mentor, and then John Keeble, the fiction writer there. So th those would be first, and it was it was mostly reading their work, and then having some conversations and then small pieces. And then of course we all have our own affinity, right? Like what, what kind of language do we love? You know, I've always been attracted to deeply lyrical poetic writers, you know? So then, then the mentors came from people like Melanie Ray Tone, you know, hey. and you know, I still just find all of her sentences. So gorgeous. You know, she, so much of that's like that. Those people are working at the sentences like poets, right? And then, now, and it's hard as a poet to write a good novel, I think, or a good short story, because too poetic is usually too dense. Like that paragraph has, you know, it's probably bordering on, you know, a lot of people wouldn't enjoy reading it, you know. <laughs> now, some people would, you know, you know, it's sort of like, that's not, that's that's got a lot of uh, lyrical, sinewy interrelationship, you know, to rhythm and syncopation and music musical qualities you know it's it's not like you know they met at the pass and started battling you know it's not a hemingway-esque type sentence you know what I mean? and so so you know some of that's like give and take what you love and what you what you appreciate uh so and i think i think poets on one level personally i think when they're writing novels they have to um make it more clear and not quite so extremely lyrical. But in this book, I'm like, whatever, I'm going to do whatever lyricism I want to do. You know? mm. And so, <laughs> so it's different as you've noticed from like American Copper, where you're following a lot of sort of more direct through lines and yep. both plot structure and sentence structures have certainly there's lyricism in American Copper, but, but this one's like, all right, this story is sort of to me like the beginning of humanity. 
you know. Mm. We've certainly loved each other from the beginning and hated each other from the beginning. <laughs> so let's let's just let it fly in a small space and see where it takes us, you know. You know, so even in American masculine, one one story is told they just completely nonfiction. It's just completely my family. <laughs> and then the rest are fiction, you know, but they they sit the same way, kind of, you know what I mean? So it's like it's just playing with this genre thing. And this book, I really like the idea of, okay, I know it's not going to be very uh, edible to the public. <laughs> That's fine. So I just wanted to just torque it up, torque it all as, as joyfully as I could. <laughs> Dad coached on the reservation and, and uh, the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, so he has a lot of like you mentioned before, he explores a lot of that that culture too. Yeah, and interesting that like he did, he moved away quite a long time. He's been teaching Gonzaga for I don't know if it's close to twenty years, but it's mm-hmm. something like that. And all his stories tend to come back and revolve around Montana in mm. in, in some way or, or another. You know, lots of beautiful descriptions of the landscape here, and I mean, he knows it intimately, but. He's not writing about, you know, urban settings so much as where he's traveled and lived other places. Yeah. So a lot of the stories link back to Montana. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one thing we haven't touched on about you. Uh, you grew up partly on the, the reservation, or the Cheyenne yeah. Reservation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, a, I'm looking at the diplomat and the yeah the character there says he followed the outlet to spoke of white sponsored terror in the u.s and what to do in the aftermath of it and then you list charleston jackson beaver creek ferguson stanford staten island l.a rodney king eric Gardner, trayvon martin and you go through that whole thing uh talk a little bit about growing up on the reservation how that's you know influenced your writing but you're very much i mean was it important for you to list those those exact names and tragedies? Yes. Know. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a worldwide list like that one. Mm-hmm. You know, you're sort of choosing the diplomat is a, is like you're thinking there, too. It's sort of somewhat of bridging. You know, I was having a conversation with one of my you know native friends the other day, like just noticing that both, you know, males and females, uh, people of all colors, there will be a tendency sometimes to to go towards um what do we call it? Almost like an exoticizing of the other culture, whatever culture it is. And, mm. and usually, especially, usually, especially the one that has been victimized. You, know? you, you actually mentioned that you say men eroticize hatred, not only for women, but also for the butch, the femme, the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. So that one, that story is doing a lot of stuff, right? It's kind of gay life and, you know, it, it's all these intersections, violence, culture, um, you know, sexual preference, power lack of power etc so and it and it's kind of making it into this foreign world thing and all of this exoticizing so and people tons of people do it so i was just talking with you know one of my close friends about i just i just noticed a writer that wrote a they basically the whole essay was about kind of the 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 beautiful way that native america loves the land the flowers the animals right and 
And I was just commenting about like, there isn't a culture that hasn't raped, killed, murdered, and destroyed each other and other cultures. That, you know, there isn't one. So it's tricky to write about, I believe in this, you know, if I'm talking about my Czech culture, I believe in just, and so we were, I was just talking about it as that's, that's like a common form for all of us of what might be called a, you know, in our, in American culture, we call it white nationalism, you know, mm-hmm. but in the, in that culture, it might be called, you know, Blackfeet nationalism or Cree nationalism or, you know, whatever it is, you know, because uh, this group of flower children that healed the world doesn't exist. You know, there, there isn't one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And at the same time, there are people that are really devoted to that and do a good job, you know what I mean? Like of bringing healing or shaping culture or changing the dynamic of, you know, but I was, I was just noticing myself, like we have to get, I believe we have to get under it somewhat as artists, like, and under it is everybody's culpable. And certainly some people are more culpable than others, mm. you know? And then what do we do with like high level culpability, the greater the power, the greater the financial machine, the harder it is to pull it down and to change it to some type of restorative uh, or reparative justice, you know, but also the way big shifts can happen, you know, like the cold, the cold war and the fall of the Berlin wall and, you know, the Velvet revolution in Czechoslovakia, um, you know, everything that was happening in Russia to break up the Eastern Bloc. You know, you can feel you, you felt it more more before there was this very intensified hatred between extreme left and extreme right that's in America right now. But mm-hmm. that too, that too, research wise, that's happened five times in American history. This is the fifth time. Oh, really? You know, yeah, it creates a vacuum in which people want peace. You can already feel it a little. You know, people feel like, oh my God, they do not want to get into some massive intensity with you over left and right right now. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, there's certainly tons of people that still want that, like are just on fire for it, you know. But right before that, we were having much more movement towards the possibility of like a, a some type of American Truth and Reconciliation Commission, like in South Africa. And that, and that conversation I saw, I think Russell, you were writing about it recently too. Mm-hmm. I think that thing, something like that, it would be great and would be a wonderful way to to you know go forward as a nation. It has to come from the cold, you know, kind of the grouping of American cultures that are not dominant culture, you know? Yeah. And, and then right. it can, then, you know, then it can kind of move in, in the quality directions, right? Because if it was coming from dominant culture, it would happen forever ago. We're kind of approaching the show a little differently than we used to. We used to ask for someone to, pair their book up with a, a writer from the past and now we're asking them to pick a, a book or a writer that influenced them mm-hmm. and shan picked a book called cheyenne memories and it's a recorded history by john stans and timber and it was recorded and written down by Margot liberty so it's basically him telling her stories and her she wrote them, wrote them down, probably published in, I should have checked this. Was it published in the sixties maybe? Yeah. And what a fascinating book that is. I was completely absorbed in this book. Yeah. I mean, he's uh, one of the foremost historians, right? John Stanton Timber. And uh, it's first person accounts and stories that he heard growing up, learning at the feet of, of elders and, um, it's it's in 
an oral history, which has now been written down in essence, right? Mm -hmm. It's pretty fascinating. I like the way uh, she has so many footnotes where she points out some of the discrepancies and different versions of, you know, and of course that's one of the fascinating things about all native oral histories is that um, it's just with one person's version of what happened. And there's, there's always the question of whether they remember things correctly. <laughs> right. So, yeah. No, that, that is one of the fascinating things about it that I really enjoyed too, is that those little footnotes that um, do mention, well, in a different account, Mm-hmm. There's a discrepancy here. This one and that one are generally considered the most uh, valid or most likely the most authentic. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it's it's I learned so much history that I hadn't really known mm-hmm. by, by by reading these. And I love the fact that she, I mean, she clearly did her research because there's several times where she says. You know, he'll tell a story about someone and, and she'll say he's probably thinking of a different person here because uh-huh, this person yeah. was would have been six years old or whatever. You can tell she did her due diligence as far as mm-hmm. making sure that he had the facts as close to possible. Am I right that he passed just before, like months before this actually came out? So he never got to see it in print. Oh, is that right? I think I, so. I didn't I don't know, know that. if that's in the, might have been in the introduction somewhere or or some supplementary reading I was I was doing on it. Mm. I think Shan Shan would know that. Yeah, of course. Another thing that was interesting to me about this was her take or his take on the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Mm-hmm. Because of course, you know, everyone has always wondered whether there was a solid native account of that and his explanation for why there really isn't is fascinating to me. The fact that so many people were hesitant to talk about it because they were afraid of repercussions. I, it's funny, it never mm-hmm. really occurred to me that that would be an issue. Mm-hmm. No, I, I remember having this the same thought about that. It's a, that's one of the you know fascinating chapters in the book is that it you know does relate that um, from as best they, best he can the, the native perspective and what they remember and think about it. I was also intrigued by the fact that so many people that were there said there was really no way to tell who shot Custer or anybody because there was so much gunfire going on. It was impossible to tell who was hitting, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah the, yeah, the fog of war type of thing. Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and you, I can't really imagine, but you can imagine that yeah, in that kind of chaos, just, you know, how can anyone remember anything? Exactly. Perfect? Yeah, it was also interesting, the young men who sort of volunteered to be the suicide mm-hmm. warriors and how many people thought that was why the battle ended so quickly, because these guys mm-hmm. just went in there and went after it. And, and if it hadn't been for them, it, it could have been a much different yeah, um, much it dragged on for hours. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting that it, it uh, the nature of storytelling um, is different than often how you know white America or how we tell stories. Absolutely, so there's, there's that 
repetition, things often happen in threes, especially with the creation stories that near the beginning. Mm, yeah. So it, it so it it's fun to read that kind of way of storytelling. Mm -hmm. So I, you can see your the influence of your experience on the reservation in your in your storytelling because you have sort of the same sort of yeah. circular circular approach and yeah. but I was curious about whether you've um, encountered any flack about appropriation with that yeah. being such a big deal right now and of course my view on it has always been that. All yeah. fiction is appropriation. I mean, we're always writing about something that we sure. don't know anything about. So, yeah, what's your experience been with that? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would, you know, I think you probably see in some of the recent writers like John McCorder, the Black Linguist from Columbus, who's writing for the New York Times, and Pamela Paul, who used to, you know, direct the uh, New York Times Book Review. You know, is now writing mm. for the New York Times, but. But they're really talking about the far left censorship agenda at this mm. point is is very similar to the puritanical agenda of the far right. Mm. So both agendas are kind of similar throughout history. Like they just they just meet at the top of like somebody is screwing me over, and therefore they need to die or they need to be <laughs> erased, erased or silenced or something. And so yes, I think everybody's experienced that. You know, it's kind of like I think a Deborah Magpie Erling right now. You know, on the Lost Journals of Second Juliet. She's not writing about her tribe. Right. Who gives a shit? <laughs> yes. She can write whatever the hell she wants to write because she's a beautiful artist. Exactly. You know? And it will it will either show up that it was something that wronged somebody's culture, and then of course we will talk about it. Or she she did it in a beautiful way that, you know, humbly and powerfully captures both the shadow and the light of all of humanity, which is how she did do it. <laughs> and it will stand the test of time, you know. Yeah. So I always feel like it's it's kind of like waves, right? Like, uh, yes, no one should be actively trying to harm somebody else's culture. That's a great point. Everybody that's sort of trying to write about anything else should try to do it justice. Also, another great point. Yeah. Um, but I do find it ridiculous to try to say nobody can write about this or that. You know, like right, sounds ridiculous. Uh, and there's a lot of great defenses of it now. I mean, Zadie, Zadie Smith, White Teeth, right? She wrote an incredible essay on the defense of fiction that's directly on this. Um, so I think it's people, I think, we, you know, and I'm, and I'm anti-authority, so I'm always like, yeah. <laughs> always writing, always writing about other cultures, always writing across uh, sexual orientation dimensions and across mm -hmm. gender dimensions. And, because I feel like it's healing, you know, like to receive another culture and to try to give love and and care uh obviously one has to know one's own identity one's own culture or, or we're sort of writing generally too too nebulously i think you know but, yeah but um and and that's and i think that's what's also very helpful right is you know it is tricky tricky time to live because there's so many sort of landmines but it's also a good challenge it's a good calling like why aren't there so many landmines yeah well if if i know more about my own culture then I can, you know, we can be in that conversation better, right? So if I'm talking to my Cheyenne friends about the Sand Creek Massacre, should they be expected to read about the Medici Massacre in Czechoslovakia? Mm, and the answer is, the answer is yes. Mm. I should be expected to understand the Sand Creek Massacre and they should be expected to understand the Medici Massacre. Mm. And now we're in a totally different conversation and it's not so fraught. 
Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I, I, I love it, but it's also like very, <laughs> very landmine oriented. These days. Yeah. It's tricky. Yeah. So I yeah. actually want to thank you for recommending this book because yeah. Mike, the novel I'm working on right now, one yeah. of the main characters is a, is a Northern Cheyenne kid. Yeah. Awesome. And yeah. when I, when I was looking for names, yeah, totally. I Googled Northern Cheyenne names and I, I loved little wolf. Yeah. So I'm like, Oh my God, I've got my character's family history. At this that, exactly. Right. You get, and, and that's such a good thing too, right. Is just what you're doing or just what I'm doing. Like if I, if I have to go write about people in Czechoslovakia, you know, like when I'm writing about the, the DJ Masker in Blood, Fire, Vapor, Smoke, that center poem, you know, mm-hmm. inside there, um, I want to know the histories. Do you know what I mean? And similarly, I want to know Little Wolf's. Oh, what, what, what was the Little Wolf history? You know, that would be interesting right. to know and how we handle that. You know. So what what was it about uh, John Stans and Timber's book that? Yeah, stood out for you. Yeah, Cheyenne memories. You know, I th- I think so much of it too, and I'm I believe it's probably both of you since you're so based in ecology and and the land as well. Um, you know, there's nothing like hearing John Stans and Timber talk about these these ways, these like physical ways of landscape. You know, like this is what we did with a sick horse. You know, mm. or you know, this skull had this arrow piercing its eye when I was walking along the trail. <laughs> you know, it's all just so gritty and so physical. I love that. And then the fact that he's he's sort of talking about ritual and ceremony and people. And it just reminded me so much of all of our families and our uh, devotion to some form of ritual or ceremony. Like I, I just heard from a friend, they're, they're, big patriarch passed away over in Seattle and, you know, and then they showed me the pictures and they decided they were going to scatter the ashes, you know, out uh, kind of on this cliff top that is in the, um, kind of around Anacortes and, and, you know, these beautiful islands, you know, okay. This is like maybe a two mile hike or something. And they just scattered the ashes. Well, then they showed me the pictures and the two oldest boys are carrying like, uh, it's basically like a, you might think of it as a stretcher, but they, they, the one sister just built it out beautifully with all these flowers lining it. Mm. And then, you know, stabilized the middle, a middle part of it that had, again, like sort of like a temple of flowers. And then the, you don't even see the urn, but it's in there. Mm. And these, these two boys are carrying this like funeral beer, you know, wow. all, you know, all these miles up to, <laughs> and, and then, uh, and I was like, oh, and I was talking to the son, one of the sons that carried it, grandsons. And I'm like, what? Yeah, what's what's your uh, what do you think when you look at that? And this 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 patriarch was not easy to work with. I mean, mm. but then there was one person in the family. There was a one of the daughters. Everybody was fractured. Everybody was like, not even really talking to each other. And she started it about when he starts to die about a year, two years before he dies. She starts just breaking through all those and like whatever you know. We got to treat people with dignity when they die. You know. Mm just going over there and taking care of him and calling her sister to, they had not talked to each other at all. You know, let's take care of him together. You know, it doesn't go perfect, obviously, you know, and whatever, but they, they're just trying to take care of him that whole time. Well, that other sister is the one that built that flower beer, you know? Mm. And so, you know, like, anyway, then I talked to the grandson, what do you, what do you think of that? You know, that thing. And he said, you know, like, if I had to describe it in one word, I'd just say beautiful. Yeah, Cause you're talking about ritual. And I'm looking for, yeah. You know, I noticed it. 
Um, yeah. One of the things that jumped out at me when I read that um, was right near the beginning where the, um, he's relating some of the creation stories. Yeah. And he talks about how the speaker would, with his thumb, make some you know different marks yeah. in the dirt, pass right. his hand up his, his his arm and his shoulder and across yeah. his, and that and and John stands in timber says that is a way of signifying that the creator is going to be witness to this story, listen to it, and therefore it is it is a true story. It's yeah. it's true. It's truthful. So and it awesome, made me yeah. think, wow, you know, if we treated storytelling with such reverence, with yes. such importance, how would yes. it? How would we be different storytellers? How would I mean we we I often I mean as writers we tell stories sometimes just for amusement yeah. or fun or this, this or that yeah 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 but in but in general if society understood the importance of story and word um, what what might how how might our society be different? I was hoping you could talk a little. I loved that too. Like I pulled that out a lot too. The physicality, the the honoring, the and I've I've often written about this like in essays as well that. You know, we get to industrialized cultures and high capitalism or high communism cultures, and we often forget that level of just to put his thumb in the dirt and then made these three stripes, you know, and, then, and you know, that's kind of like uh, she she wrapped the funeral beer in flowers, you know, right. she, uh, she sat by his bedside or like when my mom was dying, you know when we leave the room let's both put our hands on her arms and then let's touch her head and kiss her on the temple and then say a prayer over her you know like these are all just so gorgeous and sometimes we sort of and not that everybody needs to think the same way or anything but i think we lose sight of the divine or the mystery so easily in you know gerard manley hawkins talked about it like you know nor can foot feel because it's shod like meaning you know our foot doesn't feel the earth because we're wearing shoes all the time, you know, like, or we're not in the river or, you know, so I do, I do just love that about John Stans and Timbers. Like let's look back into the Cheyenne history and, and we could look back into my Czech history or anybody's history and we're going to find these things or even our today history. You know, we're going to find these, these gorgeous rituals. Some of them very informal, some of them more informal, some of them created by the family right then. Some of them are long-term, you know, um, but yeah, I'm I'm with you. I think it's like a valuing of it's almost and that that you see in psychology too. Like the, everything comes down to the one one to one relationship, you know, and and that that's what I see there. It's like one to one with the earth, one to one with the person next to you. And again, we don't want to over glorify it. I mean, the Cheyennes also just like the Czechs have you know done plenty of murder and rape, you know, and you know, but we do want to notice that the core of healthiness and love is captured by a lot of this uh, powerful commitment to story and to, you know, who we are together. What, what uh, do you have in the fire right now? What are you working on? Yeah, so it's a, it's sort of a little bit in line with uh, what, you, what we're all three talking about today. I've worked on a novel for four or five years. It was very painful to make uh, because it had so much of this tension in it, appropriation tension, mm. honoring tension. So I decided to do a novel of uh, five different couples, all mixed race. Oh. And and all of them will hearken back to the genocide that their own culture committed and to the genocide that was committed against them. Oh, Wow. So that's been done now for about a, two years. It's been rejected by all major houses. Very nice, uh, you know, complimentary 
rejections, et cetera, you know, but, but I think it's just such a hard book for somebody to take on, you know, um, because it is like everybody would be appropriating everybody in that novel. <laughs> That's so, hilarious. Yeah. So I kind of look at these projects and go, well, let's just put it right in the middle of the. Yeah. Bravo um, for yeah. you for just diving in and doing that. Yeah, it was it was a lot of it was really interesting, you know, like and I'm, I'm glad it's done because it's just painful to produce because it's uh, you are trying to balance around all people in these different scenarios. And wow, when you start looking at what's happened to everybody's, you know, and it's all it ends up only having sort of 11 people, which is maybe, you know, 22 to 35 different cultures, you know, but you're focusing specifically on kind of 22, you know, mm. um, and you're looking back at what happened with this and that, you know, it's just, you know, the, the genocide is never ending. <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah. Well, being, now, being it doesn't, the, go ahead again. I'll just say being in a mixed marriage, exactly. mixed race, yeah. I, I can't wait to read it. So other than that, it's brother poems these days. I've been really enjoying writing brother poems. Brother poems. Poems about your relationship with your brother? Kind of like or all the brother, brothers. Kind of like all the brotherhoods. All the had. brothers. My, my brother, yes, too. But Your basketball just, brothers. Just everything, yeah, yeah. Across, yeah. there's so many, right? Like, I mean, all the the different countries I've worked in on the genocide things, there's so many brothers mm. in every country there, you know. And yeah, so it's been it's been enjoyable to kind of. That's cool. what you you yeah. use brother often, like you say, "Hey, brother." And yes, in your, very in true. Your emails at the, at the <laughs> very true the salutation. Yeah. Yes, he does. Yeah, that probably yeah brought me to the poems too. It was like that is interesting, just that thing, you know. Uh, Even Elizabeth, you remember American Copper? It's kind of follows the Elizabeth Barrett Browning and that Robert Browning cycle of you know a woman who's got a tyrant father who doesn't want to allow her to get married or her brother to get married you know so that actually was kind of came out of this the story of elizabeth Barrett browning and robert browning but which was their story too uh, as far as she couldn't escape her father's grip and her father was this, uh, this you know held slaves in the west indies and mm. but anyway the brother goes all the way back to that too because she called her brother bro even back then you know really <laughs> yeah how weird wow Wow. Yeah. She was gangsta. Yeah, she was. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, brother. Yes, yeah. brother. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> this has been awesome. Uh, pleasure to be with you, Russ and Charles. Man, yeah. just love both you guys. Love your work. So thankful to just be be in this uh, friendship with both of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, likewise. Yeah, mutual. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland, and me and my co-host Charles Finn have been talking to Shan Ray about his book, Blood, Fire, Vapor, and Smoke. And we've also been talking to him about a book that influenced him called Cheyenne Memories, an oral history of John Stans in Timber that was written down by Margot Liberty and published in 1967. Please join us again next time, and we'd also like to thank our sponsors again, the Bookstore in Dillon, Montana, and the Isle of Books, and the Isle of Books and Books in Bozeman and Butte.